You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, welcome to the show. Now you have heard me tease Brad over and over again about Survivor, and I think it's a well-deserved tease. But I knew that since this is such a big fixture of his life, we needed to find someone in the Phi community that was living this thing out. Someone that we could bring on the show to share with us what would it actually look like behind the scenes. But I had a problem. I don't know anybody that has actually participated in Survivor. Fortunately, I do know one person in the Phi community that has actually participated in the amazing race in China. And today, I'm super excited to introduce to you Kai, who blogs about her life, her life travels, international geo-arbitrage, and does country reviews over at alabamalaysia.weebly.com. This is going to be a fun behind-the-scenes interview at what it looks like to travel the world with your spouse for 1600 bucks. I kid you not. That's what it costs. And for everyone out there that says, I can't do it. I could never do it. We're going to show you how it worked when they did this exact event and maybe pull out what it would look like for you to try this now. So to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Jonathan. Thanks for uh, the little poke at my survivor love. But uh, how cool that we have our very own reality show contestant here in the in the Phi community. And Kai sent us an email. Actually, she's a listener and she sent an iTunes review over to us and, and this amazing email. And basically, she was talking about reverse geo arbitrage. And then she mentioned the amazing race. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really, really cool. I invited her on the show and here she is. So it should be a really wide ranging and fun conversation. So with that, Kai, welcome to the show. Hi, Jonathan and Brett. Thanks for having me on the show. I've been a listener of the show since the very beginning. So definitely very excited to be on it. So Kai, I could see this going either way, but I'm curious, what happens first? Do you have the audacity to put together a global travel plan for literally $1,600? And then after that, get inspired to do the amazing race? Or do you tackle this awesome idea, this awesome challenge of the amazing race? And that's what inspires you to tackle global travel. Tell us a little bit more about that. So I've always loved traveling ever since I graduated. I've been trying to do a little bit of traveling here and there. And of course, amazing race. I've loved watching it all along. And I was like, well, it would be cool for me to actually get on the amazing race. And that was actually five years back before before this travel around the world even happened. I was like, let me just try to maybe find a way to get some free travel and Amazing Race would be awesome. So I saw this, that they were auditioning for Amazing Race in China. And the good thing about that is they don't restrict nationalities. So me and my brother are just asking, um, do you want to try, submit an application video and then we'll see where it goes from there. So, yeah, we put together a quick audition video, got shortlisted, and then the next thing we knew was, do you want to come to Shanghai for a quick interview? I was like, sure. Yeah, it's like the whole process took about 
three months when we finally found out that, yeah, we've been selected to be on the show. And that was my first time traveling to China. And this race is basically traveling all around China to different cities. So Kai, you grew up in Malaysia, right? So you, you and your brother, did you both live together in Malaysia and then you applied for this amazing race in China? Is that how it worked? Yes. So fun fact, me and my brother are actually twins. We've pretty much spent the first 20 years of our life together. We went to the same school, studied in the same class. And this was more because I knew I was going to move to the U.S. eventually after I got married. So this was kind of like the last adventure that we can have together before, before we moved on to the next stage of life. And what does that application process look like? So I say uh, with a, a lot of uh, hope in my voice, because my kids always joke that I should apply for Survivor, which I probably will never do. But who knows, right? So you put in this application. Did you have some amazing hook, like in this video that you submitted? What got you selected? I think what got us selected was one thing was we were twins. And there aren't a lot of twins combination, especially in China because of the single child policy. But yeah, me and my brother being twins and we just kind of just say what we want to do, travel China and see China for the first time for ourselves. To be honest, I'm kind of embarrassed to share the video. (laughs) Just to look back at the video, I was like, how did we even get through with this video? But never try, never know, right? So let me ask you this. So The Amazing Race has been pretty well documented, and it basically is a series of challenges to go all over different geographic locations. In this case, it sounds like it was mostly China. If there was a single experience that still stays with you now, what is your single best highlight from that experience of The Amazing Race? I would say there was this one challenge where me and my brother were the only ones that actually succeeded in the challenge, basically balancing a big pot on our head. Whereas everybody else went for another challenge, which was basically eating one kilogram of kimchi. I'm glad we didn't do that because, yeah, they were pretty much on fire after that. But, (laughs) um, yeah, that was basically what kind of brought us back into the race because we were were trailing a little behind for the first two legs. And then after this leg, we consistently stayed top three for the next few more legs. So I think that was like a turning point for us in the race. Well, it would be cool if I could say that you won the amazing race, but I can say that you are the only individual that I know personally that has made it as far as you did. So that, that has to count for something somewhere. But what really <laughs> makes this cool, see what I see how you get the participation prize here. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> uh, but what I think does make this cool is that this was not the last time you traveled. I mean, when I go onto your blog, what I'm seeing is someone that kind of takes that same level of creativity and being willing to move outside of maybe their own normal geographic region. I know now you're actually living inside the United States, but you have traveled to 30 plus countries at this point. And I love some of the showdowns that you've put together comparing the cost basis in two different countries. Yes. So living in Malaysia, I was, I was making pretty good salary um, I was able to travel within that region, Southeast Asia, Asia, quite a good bit. I was like, that's pretty good. And I've always talked about like dollar to dollar comparison with my husband who was here in the US and then I was living in Malaysia. I was like, it's not that bad after all living in Malaysia. So finally, 
after all this discussion, I was like, let me just put some numbers together and compare what it's like living in Malaysia on a Malaysian income versus living in the U.S. on a U.S. income, doing the same job, basically. And the result was pretty, pretty interesting. It's not like you can't achieve FI in Malaysia, but just being in the U.S., earning USD, and hopefully one day retire in Malaysia, you can actually shave like 50% of the time off your working life just doing that. So Kai, I'm curious about, about that calculation. So are you saying you can have a significant savings rate if you had your job in Malaysia with the, the amount you were paid in Malaysian currency and Malaysian expenses as you could here in the US earning US dollars and the normal expenses or like talk us through what, what the equation was essentially or like what the results were of, of this. I, I, I guess I'm just missing that ever so slightly. Yes. Yeah, so assuming the same same job, you make 60000 per year in Malaysian ringgit and in USD, it's almost the same. So we could compare like to like. But we always say cost of living in Asia is cheaper. Yes, it's cheaper for people earning a higher currency. But living in Malaysia, say if you want to buy a house, it's at least 500 grand in local currency. Compared to here, you make the same level of income, but you can easily get a house for like 200 grand. So there's like a big difference there. So even though cost of living may be lower in Asia, but when you're earning the local currency, it is actually not as low as many people think it is. So this is truly a cost of living showdown. I think that sometimes what we have trouble doing is comparing apples to apples in that, you know, like here in the States, we have obviously the US dollar. If you're in South Africa, you're going to be talking about the rand. And sometimes there's just too many variables to really pin down, you know, what that conversion is. Now, that doesn't matter for most of us that are staying in our own local country. But when you're talking about the idea of international geo arbitrage and potentially earning money in one place and then retiring in another, that apples to apples comparison and how to make that becomes critical. That's the premise of this, right? Yes, definitely. So that's why I say it's reverse draw arbitrage because it's good when you move to a place where you make more, but it doesn't make sense that you move from, they say, oh, it's cheaper to live in Thailand or Malaysia. And then you just move there and start working there. That equation will not work. So Kai, talk me through, you're a CPA. So as I understand it, you were an accountant in Malaysia and you moved to Alabama and had a either the identical or a very similar job. So are you saying that that is the translation, I guess, would be, let's say, 60,000 Malaysian ringgit equals about 60,000 US dollars? Like that's what you were paid in both places? Is that like it's roughly the like one to one? Am I yes. hearing you right? Yes, okay. you're, you're exactly right on that. And the conversion rate from Malaysian to USD is about $1 to 4 ringgit Malaysia. So basically just me transferring over here, doing the exact same job, I actually make four times more. Wow. Okay, I got it. So, okay, that makes perfect sense. So now if you're able to save significantly here in the US, living, like you said, the, the housing costs where you are in Alabama are only 
200,000 as opposed to 500,000 Malaysian ringgit, I totally get how you can save a fairly significant amount and achieve FI here in the US, especially if both you and your husband are, are on this path. When you're calculating your FI number, are you calculating it based on 25 times your expenses today in the US, which would then be essentially like 100x what it would the value in in Malaysian ringgit? Or are you calculating what you need for based on like where you plan on spending your time? No, we're actually calculating based on spending the time in the US. So it's basically, actually, we're going for 35 times our expenses in the US. Oh, wow. So your five plan is based around 35 times your annual expenses. And on top of that, there's a high likelihood that a, that a large percentage of your time, 50% plus, will be spent in a country where that will go two to three times farther? Yes, that's correct. So we're, we're being very conservative here. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, that, that is I the mean, word that comes to mind. <laughs> we have to we have to factor in some travel costs as well. So it's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, that makes sense. No, I mean, certainly I know about being a conservative accountant, right? So that that's what they teach us and basically day one. So so I get it. But but where did you come up with 35 times, especially considering there's like Jonathan said, a very high probability that you'll be spending in Malaysian currency and not in U.S. dollars. So you like for me, the argument would be, okay, I can I can choose to be maybe slightly less than the the rule of thumb, the 25x. So how did you guys arrive at 35x? I think just one main concern that we have is inflation. Especially in Asia, inflation is growing at a much higher rate than the US. So we would rather be on the safer end. Because I mean, people, I mean, my fr- friends and family back home are always complaining about how things are getting more and more expensive every year. So, I mean, 10 years down the road, who knows where that number will be? It may not be as cheap as currently. So, I mean, our plan may not work out as great as we expect them to be. So, yeah, that's that's basically where we come from. No, that's great. I love that. And I mean, certainly if you were five by any definition in the U.S., which 35X would be, you always would have that fallback plan of just being in the US, right? So that's that's kind of funny here when we're talking about geo arbitrage, essentially, you have the US, the most expensive place as the fallback plan. So that's that's kind of cool. Yeah, and we do own a house that we're still paying mortgage on. We don't plan to pay off early. So that has to factor into our expenses as well. I mean, we could potentially rent it out in the future, but our plan is to keep the current expenses level and project it all the way out. So Kai, I'm curious, how long is this path to five for you from basically, I guess, whenever you started, whenever you would consider your inception date, was that in Malaysia or was it when you came to the US and met your husband? Talk us through your actual five path, where you are now and and how many more years you have left, do you think? So I moved to the U.S. three years ago, and that's really when we started on this five path. So we're looking at probably maybe about eight years more to go, which is still considerably less than the normal working years. So we don't want to be too aggressive and too crazy, like just cut it to five, even though we could potentially do that. But eight years is short enough to work. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't want to be, yeah, I don't want to be too too greedy. 
I like I mean, it's already a great privilege to be able to have this fire idea and potential a very high chance of making it a reality. So we don't want to be we don't want to take it for granted. So Kai, eight more years. I mean, that's a very short time. Obviously, you came here to the U.S. three years ago. So we're talking an 11, 11 year path to five, which is phenomenal. But still, there are eight more years and you love to travel. I'm curious, what does that look like? What does world travel look like for you for the next eight years before you hit your fine number? So we will continue to travel as much as we can, especially during our working years. We'll try to do more things that require actually more money while we're, we're making money still and do things that are more physically challenging because we're still young, we're still able-bodied right now. So we're hoping to do more of that even when we're trying to get on this path to fly. And of course, travel hacking plays a big part in helping us to cut costs while, while traveling, seeing the world and still save money at the same time. So I'm torn because I really want to talk specifically about all the travel hacks that you've documented. But before I go there, I really wanted to slow down and say, how did you even find this concept of FI? If nobody back home is talking about this and you recognize that it's an incredible privilege in your own social circle to even be able to afford to think about this, you had to have that light bulb moment from, from somewhere. Was it from your husband? Was this something you brought to him? Like, Where did the idea that this was even possible come from? So when I first came here, fire wasn't really in the, in the mind. I mean, it wasn't even discussed at all. My, my husband wasn't really into fire. I mean, he would pull up like the compounding interest calculator and say, oh, this is how many years it takes for us to get to a certain number. And I was like, oh, I'll just brush it. I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and then I think coming here um, for the first time, it's like 401k, IRA, all these things are new to me. I have absolutely no idea what they all are. So I had to learn myself. And of course, through my research, I kind of stumbled upon blocks like Metfinis. And that's kind of like, oh, that's a, that's a new world out there called FI. And that kind of got us excited to accelerate our savings and then use all the hacks that we can to try to get us quicker to that number that we're looking for. So did you come together at this at the same time, or was one of you constantly peppering the other with articles to try to get each other on board? I was more into the articles. Um, my husband just, he just likes to look at the compounding interest calculator. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it takes. That's all it takes for That's Brad too. <laughs> yeah. And and we, we're kind of on board at the same time, like saying that this is a pot. I mean, this is totally possible. And we've both been pretty frugal and I've always been tracking expenses even back when I was in Malaysia. So I just kept doing it over here. And so I would share, share the numbers with him because I mean, he's not someone that tracks everything. So once he see the numbers like, Oh, so this is how much we spend per year. It's actually not too bad. And, and then we started tracking more things, more numbers. And it's like, yeah, well, this is definitely doable. Kai, I'm curious if you have like a formal budget. I, I, I'm always curious if people are budgeters or not when it comes to like, do you have a specific savings rate that you try to hit? Or how does that work in your particular family? We are definitely not people that do any budget. <laughs> 
we have zero budgets and all we do is, I mean, we live the, we live frugally and being mindful with our spending, just being careful generally. Um, no, no particular savings rate. It's more like towards the end of the year when we put the numbers together, that's when we see the savings rate. It's like we, of course, right out the door, we don't get, we put a lot of money into retirement. So whatever that comes into the bank is not that much for us anymore. So that kind of takes care of the savings part. And we'll just spend below our means and the rest just kind of take care of, everything else just takes care of itself. And a couple of things came to mind. One of them is that we alluded to you being, you both, I think you're both CPAs. Is that correct? No, my husband is actually a microbiologist. Oh, so okay. So definitely nothing to do with numbers. Well, I guess I was curious about that because we're going to talk more about some of the travel hacking that, that, that you've done and the places that you've gone, 30 plus countries. And what comes to my mind is the supreme flexibility that being a CPA offers Maybe not so much with a microbiologist. How do you combine like life and family pressures with global travel? You're correct on microbiologists not being very flexible. And I totally agree with that, which is sometimes annoying me a little bit because he only gets 10 days off per year. Oh, that's, that's horrible. <laughs> that, that makes traveling tough for us. Whereas I get like 21 days off per year. So... I was like, maybe I have to strategize doing some travels without you <laughs> because you just you just can't go along on long trips. Before this, we, he was able to travel to Malaysia like a month. That was before he changed his job, so that was good. And now that he's changed his job, he has ten days off, so we have to squeeze a lot within a short span of, of time. And that is how we actually came up with that plan to travel, basically hop around the world in 20 days. So when you traveled the world around the world in 20 days, you did that when he was in his old job, not in the one that he's in now. No, he's in a new job. And then he took two weeks off. So plus and minus 14 days. And the 20 days is actually me. So he left a little earlier. Gotcha. He didn't go to Malaysia. I spent a, another week in Malaysia that he didn't. So that's kind of how we had to work around like, he had to travel one way by himself because he only gets two weeks off work. And even two weeks off is considered a lot because nobody else takes two weeks off work here. So he's like, oh, I can't be taking too much time off work because people only take like two, three days all the time. Brad, this is tragic, isn't it? Yeah, it really is sad when you hear it. But this is the U.S. work ethic, right? Like that's, and, and I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, like, people feel uncomfortable taking time off. And it sounds like in this particular job that he's in, there's this pressure to, like you said, people are normally only taking two or three days off. So I guess it's fairly unusual in that office to take your full allotment of vacation in one fell swoop, right, Kai? Yeah. For my job, it's much more flexible. So they're fine with me taking like two weeks off or three weeks off. But he's just like, it's not like they don't allow, it's more like the peer pressure because nobody else does this. And he's the one that's always taking two weeks off. Yeah. And it comes to mind that one of the strengths of our community is that idea of being able to take those sabbaticals at will, you know, or literally just switch jobs when it's time to move on or when you need an extended break, because you know, you have multiple years of runway saved up. So there is no crisis when you lose or leave your job for extended periods of time. 
you know, I, I don't think Brad and I can solve that for you on this particular <laughs> episode today. I wish I could, but I feel your pain. And I think it's worth highlighting because I know there are so many people in our community that are listening to these hacks and are tucking them away for a rainy day, thinking one day when my spouse's schedule isn't so cray cray, then we'll finally get a chance to do this stuff. I think we're all there. And the, and the good news is by being in our community, that day is coming very, very fast. And so I think the one thing that we can do, even though we can't fix the current job situation right now, is we can talk about what you have already done. Tell us, how do you travel the world for 1600 bucks? How is that even possible? That's all thanks to travel hacking. <laughs> um, I love travel hacking, especially here in the U.S. It's, it's a great thing. We don't have such great credit card sign-up bonuses elsewhere in the world. So this is one thing that I absolutely love. So I've been stockpiling my SPG points and was finally able to take advantage of it during the SPG and Marriott merger back in 2016. Oh, Brad, I remember you talking about that. You were saying this is a one-off. You have to take advantage of this. Yeah, there were there were definitely some opportunities to maximize. So essentially, Starwood and Marriott merged. And I guess Marriott technically bought Starwood. And you were able to transfer points between Starwood and Marriott. So it wasn't a one-to-one -one because Starwood points are generally considered really highly valuable. So basically, it was three Marriott points equal one Starwood point. So you could actually transfer them back and forth between your Marriott account and your Starwood account. So there are lots of different opportunities. Starwood points are transferable to dozens of airlines. And I know Marriott has a lot of special packages like the nights and flights where you can use a certain number of Marriott points and earn let's say like 120,000 air miles plus seven nights and things like that. So yeah, there are lots of opportunities to maximize. And Kai, I'm curious, what, what did you take advantage of? So I transferred 100,000 SVG points into 300,000 Marriott points and redeemed the hotel and air package that you talk about. So basically with that package, with 300,000 Marriott points, I was able to get 132,000 United miles. And on top of that, seven free nights in a Category 6 hotel, Marriott Hotel, because I was eyeing this specific hotel in Tokyo. And we all know Tokyo is not cheap. So I was eyeing that hotel. That hotel was Category 6. It's a courtyard, but it's way better than a courtyard in the U.S. So I basically did this transfer, redeemed the seven nights in Tokyo, got 132,000 United points, and then together with my, I had about 10,000 United points at that point. So the total of 145,000 United miles got us these two round trip tickets around the world. And that was because United had this awesome stopover rule that unfortunately is gone now, which allowed you to have a free stopover before you get to your destination. So I was able to fly to Cape Town and then from Cape Town fly to Japan and then from Japan back to the U.S. A total of this for 70,000 round trip. This is incredible. So I've never actually personally been able to take advantage of a stopover. But but I mean, basically, the, the idea being if you are just going from one major city in one country to another major city in another country and you're just staying in the airport for the two to three hours in between, 
that's kind of lame. I mean, if that's what you're calling traveling the world, but the stopover is you literally get to spend days at a time in a country, right? Yes, correct. So that's two things, layover or stopover. So stopover is like you can spend more than 24 hours there. It's just five days, two weeks, whatever. Layover is when you really have like less than 24 hours between your flights. And we were able to schedule a flight in a way that we had two layovers, one in London, one in Frankfurt. And then we made use of this stopover to get a free five nights in Cape Town before we finally got to Tokyo. The thing about this, this is so amazing because you you have a lot of flying to do. I mean, this is a lot of flying. And just from the US to Tokyo itself, that would have been 70,000 miles as well. So I was able to pretty much add one big loop around the world for the same amount of miles. Kai, that's really cool. So yeah, just to kind of recap there, it would normally have cost you 70,000 United miles for a round trip from the US to Japan. But because of that free stopover rule, you got to essentially take a completely free flight to South Africa in there. So you got US to South Africa, South Africa to Japan, Japan back home to the US for the same 70,000 miles. So that was an amazing, amazing perk that that used to exist in the United rules. And and they did change that, as, as you can imagine. I mean, that's just, it's kind of like a gimmicky loophole, but that was the way the rules work. So of course we were gonna take advantage of it, but now they have something called the excursionist perk. And as I understand it, we will link to an article in the show notes on this, but as I understand it, you can definitely still get a free stopover, but it has to be in the same region you're visiting. So basically you could fly from like the US to London and then get a free stopover in London on your way to Paris or Rome or wherever, and then fly back from that other European city. So since London and let's say Rome in this scenario are both in the same region, that stopover would be valid. So it's pretty cool that they still allow that stopover, but it's just not quite as lucrative as it used to be. Yep, that's unfortunate. But but I mean, loopholes doesn't, doesn't last very long. <laughs> you know, but I think that's one of the appeals of being in this community. I mean, when you're glued in and you're caught up and you're, you've already got your points accumulated, that's the thing. If you heard about this right now and you have no points accumulated, then you're not in a position to really take advantage of this stuff right now. You've got to kick it down the road a year or two. But if you've already laid the groundwork and like you said, you had the points and when the opportunity became available because you were glued into the community, you could execute on that. That That's powerful. And it again, shows the additional benefits of finding out everything that you don't know that you don't know as soon as possible, right? And you know, then now, now we're having this fun conversation instead of focusing on whether or not it's really possible to travel the world, we're talking about what we got to do to get your husband a better job. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Being ready and being informed is important because I've been eyeing this United stopover rule for a long time, but I just didn't have enough points to execute the plan. So when the opportunity came, I had to hop on it. Yeah, that's really cool, Kai. And I'm curious, I assume you haven't stopped earning points at this juncture. Where do your future reward travels take you? So in May, we're planning to go to Iceland. I mean, we've booked a flight to Iceland. And another cool stopover rule that is not date yet, which is Alaska Airlines. We've actually booked uh, fl- our flights to Fiji and New Zealand end of the year. 
So Kai, those are obviously separate trips. So uh, did you use miles to fly back and forth to Iceland? And I guess also tell everybody if you could about that remaining free stopover rule that exists for Alaska Airlines miles and how you used it for that trip to New Zealand. Yeah, so for the Iceland trip, we're using Delta Sky Miles to fly there. It's not the best redemption, but because the airport that we're flying from is is always expensive, so it makes it worthwhile to redeem. And for the Alaska Air one, so Alaska Air has a good stopover rule whereby you can stop in one destination. Usually it's the hub cities before your final destination for the same amount of miles, even if you fly one way. So what we were able to do is to fly from the U.S., get a stopover in Fiji, and then get to our final destination, which is New Zealand. So that's all one way for 40,000 miles. But you get to see two places. And for coming back, I'm also hoping to use Alaska Air Miles to fly from New Zealand and maybe take along a quick stopover in Alaska before I get back home. So for 80,000 Alaska miles, you're going to take a round trip from the U.S. to Fiji, New Zealand, and then I guess Alaska, and then back to the continental U.S. That's incredible. Yes, yes. Wow. That is amazing. You could have that locked down in three or four months. Like she so got this guy in Kentucky that's never been anywhere before. And suddenly by the end of the next year, he's gone to three countries. Boom. You're on your way. Let's get started. Yes, definitely. Definitely doable. Especially when you go to like places in Asia or Central America or South America where, you, where everything is in close proximity, you can hit a lot of grounds from there. And Kai, there are definitely ways to maximize your air miles when flying from from point to point, especially like you said, when cities are close together. Are you planning on taking advantage of the British Airways Avios points to book those flights for free or close to free? Unfortunately, I have never actually gotten any British Avios points. I mean, I've read a lot about it, but we just haven't had the opportunity to use it or, yeah, it's not in the radar right now yet. Okay. Okay, well, cool. I mean, it's something because those miles are really easy to come across if you have any Chase Ultimate Rewards points or Amex membership rewards points. And this is for you and for everyone out there because those those points do transfer to British Airways. So they have an award chart that's based on distance. So when you're when you're flying for fairly short distances, especially outside of the country, let's say if it's only 650 miles in distance for that one way flight in actual geographic distance, it only costs like 4,500 British air miles. So that's an absolute pittance, especially when from a credit card bonus that you're earning, let's say 50,000 miles from, I mean, that could be 11 plus flights, right? That's it. So there's lots of opportunity there and, you know, just something to consider. Yeah, well, definitely. That's a good idea because we may need a flight from Christchurch to Auckland between two cities, which is fairly near, but yeah, that that would be a good idea. We should probably look into that. <laughs> Very cool. Very you know, cool. but what we're really talking about is this idea of exploring and almost building like a travel resume. I know this is going to sound a little bit funny, but but the way that I look at things these days more and more, and I think Brad, you could probably relate to this, is like I'm no longer in a place in life where I care about someone's resume, like at all. Like if your job brings you value and it's a big part of what you do and it brings you joy, then sure, I guess let's talk about that. But in reality, like I, I want to talk about people's experiences and people, if you don't have any experiences, I want to 
talk about how we can make that happen. And so when I look on your homepage, I could care less about trying to find a resume on here. What draws my eye is this tab you have at the top of your page talking about where you've explored. And I'm looking at, you know, the countries in Asia, the countries in Europe, each one where you've done a travel review of the different countries you've gone to. And I said, that that's incredible. That is like firming these memories up in your mind. And there's something to be said for what it adds to your own story. What is the story you tell yourself about yourself? And I think that when you've spent a large percent of your time forming these experiences, it just makes you a more interesting person generally. Not not necessarily from the outside world, someone that hasn't met you looking in, but just you're more interesting to yourself, which kind of spills over into other aspects of your life. And I guess where I wanted to come, the land with this is as you're doing these journeys, like, are you just purely a tourist or have you felt like you've been able to slow down to some degree? The idea of slow travel doesn't apply, at least with your husband's job. But how do you interact with a country? What is it that you try to see and what sort of like sites and venues do you try to check out when you go to a country for the first time? Most of the time, because I mean, it will be my first time going to that country. I will try to cover the main sites, but usually we'll try to do, we'll try to travel like the locals, like using public transportation, stay in Airbnb or hostels. So that kind of gives us a glimpse into the life of those, those people in this country. And I like to document all my travels. Not so much to break, but more on my, for my own records. So I'm sure nobody else reads all these things that I write as much as I do myself. So, because I know that one day, 10 years down the road, I'm going to forget that that specific experience that I had. That's why I made it a point to make sure I document everything in on my blog. And it's just nice to be able to just randomly click on a trip that I've had in the past and see what I've experienced and see how I've changed. So Kai, the natural follow-up question is, what have been your favorite experiences in all your travels throughout the world? What jumps out to you as like something that, that really was impactful for your life? One impactful one was, I mean, or I should say life-changing one was actually when I came to the U.S. for a year for an exchange program. That kind of, that was my first experience being all alone in a new country, venturing out of my comfort zone because I learned so much that year and it really gave me the confidence to explore the world myself and be more interested to learn more about different cultures, meet different people from all over the world. So that was one life-changing experience that I had. Now, you said something earlier where you said you always knew you were going to move to the U.S. I think you said after you got married, but was that something that was in the back of your mind for for years when you were growing up? And I, I guess, how did you get involved in this exchange program as well? I've actually never t- really thought about working or living abroad, as it's always been Malaysia. During my third year in college, there was this opportunity that came by and say, it's a scholarship that you could apply for, and they will give you a year in the U.S. just to experience the U.S. educational system, the culture, and they just wanted people to, people from developing countries to experience the U.S. culture. So I applied for it, and I got luck, really lucky to actually got this scholarship that pretty much paid for the entire trip for me to be here for nine months. I was studying in a university here. It's a non-degree program, but 
there was community service involved. I met people from different parts of the world here. And I also got to travel a little bit around the U.S. during that year. So that was truly an eye-opening experience, which I treasure until now. This was also how I met my husband, my now husband. When we first started dating, I still wasn't sure if I was ever going to move to the U.S. Because shortly after I finished the exchange program, I actually went back to Malaysia, continued my studies, started working in Malaysia, and wasn't really certain that I was going to come to the U.S. until, until he proposed. <laughs> so that was, that was another, another story. Now, Kai, I know that you know, the way that your job is structured currently, you do not have one of these extraordinarily seasonal jobs where it's all about April, April 15th. But I do imagine that is someone that is probably, and I use this word a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little lightheartedly, but scheming, right? Scheming on how can I reclaim more of my time to travel? I enjoy my job. I love my job. I love what I do. I'm going to do it for the next eight years, but I'll be darned if I'm not going to make it to 45 countries in the next two years. It's just going to happen. So like it, with that sort of mental framework in mind, How do you see yourself reframing this work environment to allow yourself to do more of the travels, to create more of these reviews of countries? Um, I've actually been looking at like all the options that our company offers. So they have like something called flexible work arrangements where you can actually negotiate to work maybe 70% of the time and get paid 70%, of course. And there's also an option for sabbatical where we can actually still get paid for 20% and we could take just maybe two months off work. Those are definitely options that I may consider in the future. But if I ever feel like I'm burnt out from my work, I may actually think more seriously about going for these options. Yeah, Kai, that's really cool. I've I've actually never heard of that program that I guess one of the, the major international firms that you work for offers. I mean, that's really, really cool. Um, I know my wife is also a CPA and she has more of the seasonal type work that, that Jonathan spoke of, which is she basically works during tax season. So pretty much from like February 1st through April 15th, that's more or less the, the majority of her working hours during the year. And she'll do a little bit here and there, some amended tax returns or some notices after April 15th, but they're few and far between. So yeah, I mean, just being a CPA allows you some some of this flexibility, which is neat. So uh, yeah, I mean, lots of options for people in our profession, for sure. Yeah, and we have like, summers are usually slower for us. And eventually if I, because I, I would like to do some volunteering activities as well. So that could be like a good timing for me to maybe scale down a little bit on work and be involved in other volunteering projects. You know, Kai, I'm pretty sure that as we talk through this story and I think about your initial email you sent us, what immediately grabbed Brad's attention was this idea of investing in experiences. And I would love kind of as, as we bring this first part of the interview to a close to give you a chance. Is there any particular actionable takeaway that you would give to that person that's listening to this and thinking about that concept of balance. Yeah, I know. Even though it would be great to reach five earlier, and a lot of people tend to be very anxious, like, I want to hit that number as soon as possible. But I think it's also important to really step back and enjoy what you have now, live in the present, and 
just continue to invest in experiences as you move along this journey. After all, it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's how long you can sustain. And you don't want to just be miserable. Just financially trying to get to that number and not enjoy anything while you're still young and when you're still able to do a lot more to things. You don't want to push everything down to 40. When you're 40, that's when I start living life. I just don't don't think that's a good way to approach Phi. And I think that you can say this with some level of authority since you have traveled to 33 countries while still maintaining a savings rate of at least 50%. So that's perfect. Now, normally this would be the end of the episode, but on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Yes, sure. Let's roll it. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Kai, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own? I would go with MetFinies. Um, as I mentioned previously, I came to the U.S. knowing nothing about 401k, Roth IRA, or HSA. And I stumbled upon his blog and learned so much more of all the tricks that he had on like tax avoidance and stuff. So it definitely gave me a lot of light bulb moments reading his posts. Nice. I wonder if Brandon's listening to this. Brandon, if you are, shout out to you, buddy. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. So I'm going to do some hard selling here and go with a post on my blog called The Lifetime Table. So I made a table splitting our life into three different phases, learn, work, enjoy. And looking at our lifetime through this table makes it obvious that for the typical lifetime of most people involves spending 40 years of our finite life working hard just to enjoy the last 13 years, which is an equation that doesn't make sense. And it's very obvious when you look at the table, it's like you spent pretty much 50% of your life working and you're not guaranteed whether you get to enjoy the last few years or not, depending on how your health goes. So that's a, that's a good reminder for myself. And also one of the reasons why we're on this path to fly. You know, that was actually my first introduction to your blog as I stumbled on that particular article. And what's funny about that is I think that was in my mind when I was talking with Alan Donegan and the escape artist, I believe that is episode 49, the aggregation of marginal gains. And I used that was in my mind and I used some version of that during that particular episode. So I, I completely agree with your analysis of the problem. We have been brainwashed by some nefarious force out there to believe that the only years that matter are the ones that are 65 and over and everything else is just what's due to the system. And then you get to enjoy your golden years. Like I, I despise the golden years because that just indicates to me that for some reason we think that the only ones that are precious metal are the ones after you're 65. What about all the years before that? And I love how you flip that table upside down and we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Question number three, your favorite life hack. Um, obviously, travel hacking is one, but for this, I'll go with gratitude. It goes hand in hand with the FI mindset. Like when we focus on appreciating and being content with what we have in life, it helps us to focus on what's truly important. 
instead of just constantly wanting more and more and keep up with the Joneses. And the fact that we can even dream about FI and have a potential high chance of making it a reality, that's a great privilege that we should be thankful for. Yeah, I agree completely. I think mindset is, is such an underdeveloped talent, if you will. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but we all just kind of drift through life and we don't think about where we're coming from mentally, but really your mental frame impacts everything. It impacts your mood. It impacts how you look at life in a positive or negative way. And and yeah, gratitude is one of those things that that a lot of the research is pointing to saying, this is something to lock in on, just to to look around you and and just be grateful for all the the thousands of little things in your life. Not even not even to mention the huge thing like phi, like you're saying, but even just the fact that when I turn on the faucet, I have running water, like something little like that. We just take it as a given. But if you're actually grateful for these things, it's pretty hard to be in a a terrible mood when you're walking through life with the frame of gratitude. So I absolutely love that. Yeah, my husband is. A, he he actually experienced firsthand like how lucky he was to be born in the U.S. when we traveled to Cambodia and seeing all the kids that are just walking around without shoes and people are working on the farm, just using manual labor to plant like rice. That makes him appreciate what he has so much more after having that experience and seeing how others live in other parts of the world with so much more, uh, so much less. Yeah, that appreciation is, is really, really important. All right, question number four, your biggest financial mistake. I think everything is a learning experience so far, and uh, we haven't really had any major one. I think maybe one was, um, it was a large expense that we could have probably avoided spending, which was actually immigration expense. We spent uh, quite a lot of money on that before knowing that my company was going to sponsor the the work visa for me to come here. So that was more, I mean, I wasn't, I mean, we really didn't have a choice, but if we knew earlier. Yeah, I got to say, having actually gone through the immigration process with my wife and she has her green card now, you are not sitting in a place of power. When you're trying to go through that process, you are just hoping that it all that it all works. And inevitably, it's some form that you have to get corrected. It's some additional documentation that you're going to need or get reference. And I can't imagine being in that place thinking, you know, like, oh, well, there's a chance down the road that maybe my work my work will just cover this. So we just won't even worry about it. I, I just don't even think you can put yourself in that position. And I would say if that is your biggest financial mistake, I think you're doing pretty good. Nice job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Kai, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. So say life doesn't hold tryouts. I may be disappointed if I fail, but I'm doomed if I don't even try. So that goes with to apply for the scholarship, trying to apply for Amazing Race. It's like, if you don't try, you never know what life holds for you. All right, Kai, we have one bonus question. And it's basically, we in the FI community, we talk about cutting expenses and taking things out of your life that aren't necessary. But that said, there are things that you buy and you bring into your life that are really impactful and make a positive difference in your life. Is there anything that you've bought in the last year that has really made made that difference for you in a, in a positive manner? Yeah, so coming from a tropical country, I really don't like the cold weather. But I found this awesome undershirt called Hit Tech from a Japanese brand called Uniqlo for only like $4 each. 
and I just stocked them up and was basically wearing it every day for work at home. And it kept me warm all winter. Isn't that funny, Brad, that your favorite purchase of, and honestly, it's mine too. It's I have one t-shirt that I wear almost, and I have like 10 of them, right? But I have one t-shirt and that is my go-to t-shirt basically year round. It's the same thing for you. And I love the fact that it's just a daily part of your life. Kai, please give us the link so we can put that in the show notes. There are going to be people listening to this that are going to want to get more information, both about the geo-arbitrage reviews that you've done for all over the world and find out a little bit more about your story and get some additional details. What's the best way for someone to connect with you? So the easiest way is my blog, which is alabamalaysia.weebly.com. So basically Alabama and Malaysia combined to one word. That's where I blog about all my experiences, my travels, and yeah, I'm, I'm just building it up <laughs> with more of my life experiences as I go along. Yeah, it's a great site. And we certainly will link up to that in the show notes. So uh, yeah, people don't have to try to spell Alabama, Malaysia. So <laughs> yeah, it's well worth cool. the visit. It's a great site. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thanks for having me. And yeah, keep up the good work. This is the type of episode, it involves going deeper. You know, I think early on, like I had no experience with travel rewards and you opened up my eyes to like just the basics of what it would look like really just to travel domestically. And now I've actually gone to Cape Town, but we're seeing that people are taking this to the next level. Literally, you could just use your normal spending patterns and four months from now, you could basically have a ticket to go see three countries. I mean, that's, that is truly a life-changing experience. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is as simple as that. It's just being aware, right? And being smart and understanding what exists, which means, like you said, getting the miles in advance, having them ready to roll and being able to take advantage of particular perks like this United free stopover, the Alaska free stopover that when they exist, because like I said, sometimes they cease to exist, right? These amazing opportunities. And and when you're in the FI community, you're perfectly positioned to learn about these things and to take advantage of them. So it's it's wonderful. Okay, guys, if you enjoyed the episode, if you've been enjoying the episodes up to this point, take one second, just press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know that you're getting value from the content and you want to be here when we produce additional shows. And if you want to support us and what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC. P as in Paul, C as in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI, and right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.